Some of you got that. Um, not really. Um, not really. Uh, but thanks for laughing at my dumb joke. Um, uh, I'm not here to do comedy this morning. Um, I'm here as a pastor, preacher, teacher, uh, husband of, of 16 years this week to my amazing bride, Holly, and, and father of three kids. You know, uh, the Lord said, populate the earth, and we took it on as a personal project. And, and uh, you know, we got our son, who was almost 15, Connor, uh, almost, almost 14, Lauren, and then the one we almost named Finale because she was the end, Ella. Uh, she's eight. And so I'm here as just a man in Christ, a follower of Jesus, to proclaim his word this morning to you, if that's okay. Um, I came here to do that. Uh, I, I'm a 40-minute preacher, so I've scaled this thing back to 15 minutes so you wouldn't have to bring your lunch. Um, and, and so uh, I, I do that out of respect for you and, and, and God and everyone here. But Brother Bill, thank you for having us this morning. Uh, but I want to take everyone, if you will, take the Word of God by hand back to um, the, the Old Testament, uh, back to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, this whole save-a-life thing, this save-a-life issue has not always been just a current modern issue. It, it, this, this thing of, of babies being aborted and lives being killed and the innocent being murdered is, is not just a uh, this century thing. Uh, this has been happening ever since Satan fell from heaven and a third of heaven's angels fell with him. This, this one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, the one who Peter said is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, has been on the prowl, on the loose since that time, since the fall of humanity in, in, in the Garden of Eden, since Adam sinned against God, sin entered into man, and now he has man on the team with him, helping him in this effort. Wow. This is not a new thing. Standing up against abortion in a crazy, hostile environment. This has been happening since the very beginning of time. But we see here in the book of Exodus, we, we see here the, the story of Joseph wrapping up. You know, there in, in chapter 1, verse 1, his life's coming to an end. Jacob and all his brothers, you know, all those guys, um, you know, 70 persons total who had come from Israel into Egypt by the favor of God. You know, you, you see them here, their story coming to an end, their generation coming to an end. God bless sovereignly providentially, the people of Israel within the camp of Egypt. Insomuch, the Pharaoh gets scared. These people may have the ability to actually overthrow us as a nation. And it's here in Scripture that we see he actually even first calls Israel a nation because they were growing and thriving in numbers. Today I'm here to talk to you about a, in a, with a message called a voice of the voiceless or a voice for the voiceless. Here in scripture we see beginning with verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come let us deal shrewdly with them. Let us multiply or lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities like Python, Ramses, 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill them. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, this is important, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all the subjects of his kingdom. Every son that is born now to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Now the first thing I want us to see here in this, in this message called a voice for the voiceless is, is there needed to be a voice for the voiceless here even in this day and time. You know, even as this nation is growing and growing and growing, as we find out in the book of Numbers, I mean, this, this, this nation gets huge, Israel does, uh, to, the, to the ranks of about two and a half million people. There are like 608,000 males who are born in this period of time. Who can, this population, population continues to grow and grow and grow. Yet this government of Egypt, led by Pharaoh, gets very scared about what could happen with this large number of population that is not Egyptian. And so he declares all male babies to be killed, to be slayed. He asked these Hebrew midwives, and I think it's pretty Interesting that he asked the Hebrew midwives to intercede on his behalf. Isn't God good? Amen. This could have been anyone. This could have been his subjects first, right? But it was of the household of God. These people, the Hebrew midwives, these two mentioned, there were many, many more. When you think about that many people in the population, there was more than just Shifra and Pua. There were a lot more midwives. But these were like the charge nurses, if you will, of Fourth West. Okay? Anybody knows anything about ECM? Oh, they, they were in control of kind of overseeing all the other midwives. And he comes to them and says, hey, listen, you guys are going to be the perfect opportunity there in the birthing process as the baby crowns and comes into the world and stops breathing amniotic fluid and now is breathing oxygen just to take the life of these boys. And none will be the wise. Almost to 60 million abortions since Roe v. Wade 1973. Boy, there needs to be a voice for the voiceless. These Hebrew midwives got to be a voice for the voiceless. They got to stand their ground and stand for God and stand for these babies. But these Hebrew midwives had a choice to make. Do I fear Pharaoh and all of his power because he can have me killed 
instantaneously. He had me beheaded, thrown to lions, or worse. They had two choices here. Will I fear man and what man can do to me? Or will I fear the God who created me? Will I fear the God who's had his hand on us even since way before the famine in Israel, way before then, even all the way back before the creation of the world, Paul would say, before the foundation of the world? Or will we just fear reverently the God who's in control of our very being and our very life? We're faced with that every day. Will we fear what man can do to us? Will we fear the government? I got news for the government. If you're even here, I got news for you. You'll have to saw my head off to stop the gospel from coming out of my mouth. And even then, you better bury it. I'm from Lexington, Alabama. That's a good old boy saying right there. That's what these midwives did. They stood for truth and righteousness. Even facing death themselves, they stood in the gap, in the middle, on behalf of these kids and were a voice for the voiceless. Instead of fearing Pharaoh, they fearfully, reverently feared the Lord instead. And that's who we should fear more than anything. Matter of fact, that's the beginning of wisdom. Solomon would say in Proverbs chapter 1. That's the beginning of the draw of salvation. It's to reverently fear the God who created us and sent his son Jesus to die for us. These midwives did that. They feared the Lord instead. In their stand, we see in the scriptures here in this passage that the Lord blessed them for taking this stand. So many times we think, you know what? What man can do to me what God can do on my behalf. Isn't that what Satan wants us to believe? Isn't that what the old devil wants us to believe? This roaring lion seeking to be made devour. This one who's seeking to kill, steal, and destroy us. This one who Jesus said was the father of lies. He wants you and I to believe that, you know what, the best thing for us is to shut up and sit down and recluse in some kind of cave in Lauderdale County and not be a witness for Jesus and not stand for truth and not stand for righteousness and not give a care and just wait on the rapture. Well, that's not what we're called for. We're called to. We've been called to be light in this dark world. Even light, like you guys are doing, and taking up offering, light in giving, just, just giving to this, this, this mission here of reaching babies and souls. You're part of it. But I'm going to encourage you how you can be more part of it later. But they were blessed. The scriptures tell us that, that God blessed them with families. They, he blessed their homes. It says he gave them families. Isn't that something? They're sent there sovereignly by God to stand in the gap for, and be a voice for the voiceless. And being a voice for the voiceless, God honors that and shows great favor and gives them families. It's not coincidence. It's a blessing of God. We see this, we see the blessing 
for the stance that these people took. Lastly, I want us to see, though, after Pharaoh saw that the middlemen, which if you're wondering where the correlation is between the midwives and this whole conversation, the midwives are us. We're in the middle. Maybe you're not in a crisis pregnancy situation. Maybe you don't have a granddaughter who's in a crisis pregnancy situation. Maybe you don't have a friend or anyone else who's in a crisis pregnancy situation, and you don't work for a crisis pregnancy center, and you feel like, I'm, I'm as far from being in the middle as far can be. No, you're not. As a child of God, if you're here and you're a child of God, you're in the middle. And God has placed you in the middle. He's placed you in the middle. Sometimes he takes you to the very front of the line and he allows those things to happen in your life where you do have a granddaughter who gets pregnant. She didn't want to be pregnant, but she gets pregnant. She didn't adhere to the message of abstinence because Stephen and I get to speak in the public schools over 6,000 students in a year. She made a mistake. And now she's a mother. And she's being told by Satan that she can't take care of this baby. She can't foster its life. And neither can her parents because they don't have the money to do so. Had that been me in high school, guess what? I would have thought the same thing. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had God, and we had Jesus. My parents worked two jobs apiece most of the time. My mom worked 13, 14 hours a day cutting people's hair out of the old Fox basement barbershop. She makes ends meet, and the gifts were so abundant. So if this would have happened to us, there would have been no way we could have said, oh, we got this. Sometimes you're pushed to the front of the line on this issue, to the front of the line on this issue. But for most of us, we're usually just in the middle. But as you'll see, the midwives, the midwives played a huge part in the middle for the glory of God. To be a voice for the voiceless. They were there, sovereignly placed there for a reason, and so are us. So all of us. Placed here sovereignly and providentially. Since that plot failed... Now Pharaoh says, you know what, I'm going to make a decree among all my subjects in the land, and now I'm going to ask them to come to the front line, and I'm going to ask them to kill all the baby boys at once by throwing them in the Nile River to drown them all. One of the most difficult ways to die, I think, would be drowning. One of the most heinous and evil. To take a creature that can only survive by breathing oxygen and take it completely away by submerging their lungs in water. When I think about that, I think about abortion. When I think about them being thrown to the Nile, I think about abortion. I think about them take, being taken prematurely from their mother's womb, breathing amniotic fluid, forced to breathe oxygen before they're supposed to, and their lives being ended. There's been a need for a save life for a long time, and there's been a ministry of save life for a long time. God is the leader of it. Amen. And his son Jesus died for it. To make sure that it would prosper, to make sure that it would last, to make sure that it would be successful. So what do we do as a church? In the midst of this corrupt and wicked generation, what do we do? How do if, if we're the midwives, Brother Anthony, how do, how do we stand up? How do we, how do we fight the good fight? How do we, on this issue, and many more. I, I'm not here to talk about everything else. There's many more. If you have a television, 
you know there's many more. But just on this issue of abortion, how can we be this voice to the voices? Paul said it this way to Titus in Titus 2, 1 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. I'm so thankful for that through Jesus. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness. That word renounce here in this text is a verb. We're being trained to renounce. To be a voice. To speak against something. And now more than ever, it's time. Now more than ever, it's time to go to the front lines if you're not there and say, I'm going to renounce this, tra this travesty. I'm going to renounce murder. I'm going to renounce this ungodliness in the midst of this perverse and wicked generation. Because he says, we're being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Don't you hear Jesus commissioning and commanding and charging us as the church to stand, be trained, and renounce this ungodliness Amen. with our own mouths attached to our own hearts. Jesus said, from the heart man speaks. God healed and mend our broken hearts, our confused hearts, our calloused hearts, our slumbered hearts. Awaken us, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit to truth and righteousness. And give us great power to stand as Paul has commissioned us to stand through the Holy Spirit. He said we're to be waiting for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. Lastly, why should we do this? For baby boys like those Hebrew children. For baby boys like those Hebrew children. And later in the text, Moses, didn't he do some amazing things? Do you know he might have been one of those who was just thrown into the Nile? God rescued him for greatness. And he also rescued this young man right here. up here and led worship with you guys and you know it's just another Sunday you know we're here in church just worshiping and, and uh, I'm sitting here hearing the story and, and uh, they asked me to share and uh, you think about Moses think about those midwives um, I was born March 31st 1982 um, I was put into foster care at seven seven days old adopted officially at the age of two and at the age of eight, uh, I found all this out. I mean, uh, for me, it was, I was at school one day, and I had some friends back in about third grade, I guess it was, somewhere along in there, um, basically look at me and were making fun of me. They said, you know what, your, your mom's white, but you're not. And I said, uh, okay, what are you talking about? I, I just, you know, I always grew up, my name's Stephenthan William Holland. I'm a Holland. I don't know what you're talking about. And I, I go home, and uh, I kind of held it in, and I, I show up, you know, on, uh, at bedtime, and it's, it's going to sleep. You know, we kind of had a ritual there that we did with mom, and, and uh, she's getting ready to tuck me in, and I just start weeping. I'm crying, and she's like, what's wrong, son? 
And I said, oh, Mom, you know, I'm so, they're making fun of me at school. They call me different and, and said that my skin color was different. Like, what's, what's up with that? I said, I said, oh, you know, for the first time, maybe I, I realized that. And she's like, well, son, you know, she sat, sat me down as only moms can do. And she looked at me and she said, um, she said, I told you this when you were five, you know, but obviously because you were getting ready to go to school and I didn't want it to be a shock to you. You know, we, your dad and I told you, but we brought you in. Like I just said, we adopted you, brought you in our family when you were seven days old. Uh, we don't know who your family was. Uh, we've got eight pages of typewriter paperwork from 1982 that gives us a little bit of information, but we don't know it all. Um, but we took you in as a foster child. Um, you know, you got two brothers, Ricky and Rod, and you got two sisters, Renee and Robin, and you know, they were, Robin was 15 when you came into the family, and Rick and Rod were out of school, and so he, she's explaining, and Renee's somewhere in the middle, and you know, you've, you were ours, we brought you in, and she says, as a matter of fact, um, when we took you in at seven days old, um, you know, you, you were a foster child. They wanted us to keep you for about three months, so, so we did. And, and uh, then the State Department of Tennessee saw that your skin color was going to be different, and you're in a white home, and they said, we're going to take you away and put you in a home that we feel like would be better suited for you culturally. And she, she looked at my dad, said, no, uh, no, 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 this is our baby, you know. So, uh, so long story short, uh, from, from moms, like, you know, from three months old or six months old, to age two, we fought for you. Um, as a matter of fact, she pulled out a box and there's 600, 700 petition letters from churches, businesses, family, friends, uh, and I still have them to this day of fighting for me. Um, that you're gonna stay in this home because we love you and you're ours. So at age two, they officially adopted me. So this is, I'm finding this out at eight years old, okay? Um, now, I can't, I can't move past that without saying this. I, I'm sitting there, you know, I know I was loved. I never had a question of whether I was loved or not. But, I mean, that's a bomb dropped on you. You know, as an eight-year-old kid, like, you're not my family? What? You know, you're not, you didn't have me? <laughs> right? What, what, uh, you know, because I, 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 felt, I felt almost, uh, you know, anger, frustration, confusion, but love all in the same, all wrapped up in one, and I'm trying to wrestle through this, and and so this is, you know, with a quick story, this is the, the, the Wikipedia version, the Cliff Notes version. You know, I, I struggled through that, you know, kind of walking through that most life. But, but, but here's what happened, though. This is how awesome God is. Also at eight years old, whenever I felt like my world was caving in, right? I mean, as an eight-year-old, I mean, that's, it, it came down on like a load of bricks, you know, heavy-hearted, broken-hearted. Also, this is whenever we were having a revival at the church, like little red pews like this, about five rows back over here on to my right. And Brother Bob's preaching, word, the power of the word of God. Now, you got to remember my family, I, I have a, uh, 11 nieces and nephews, okay? I've been an uncle since age two. I, tell, I tease everybody, I had a drug problem, okay? I was drugged to church every time the doors were opened up. So, you know what I'm saying? The, the word of the Lord has, was, was here, okay? My little fa Fanny Jones, my, my Mimi, Mimi Jones. I tried to name one of my daughters that, but it didn't quite work out, you know. But Fanny Jones teaching my Sunday school class and, and, you know, feeding the word of God to me. That night, October 1990, I said, I need Jesus. Amen. I don't need just the name. I, I need the relationship. I need to know Jesus, right? So I, so I accepted Christ in the midst of that brokenness. So in my darkest hour... You know, but then there's this bright light, you know, this hope. 
My hope is built on nothing less. So this is what's happening there. So, so middle school, high school, I, I get into sports and trying to find my acceptance in that. You know, you know how it is. We get doing life, and, and Jesus kind of, you know, there. And, and sports start becoming so much. And um, we fast forward to uh, I had the pleasure of being able to play college baseball. So I, got, I, I went and played, played some sports there and, and, uh, and doing all this stuff. And I, and I, I, was, I was a freshman in college. Um, you know, just earned a scholarship to play baseball, sitting in my dorm room. I'm sitting there, and I'm on my knees, honestly, just praying, because the Lord was speaking in my heart to say, you know what, I'm calling you to ministry. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Remember, I had that drug problem. <laughs> you know, I've been in church, and I know what ministers, I know what that responsibility is. And what I told the Lord was, and I, I love the word broken, I told the Lord this. I was like, Lord, you can't use this. You can't use this. I'm so broken. I'm so dirty. You know, and this is what I heard him say, and not an audible voice, nothing crazy, but just in my spirit. He said, you know what, Stephen Thin William Holland, I'm going to use every single broken piece if you'll give it to me. Wow. And I, I, I kid you not, laying on my face in a dorm room in Bristol, Tennessee at King College, surrendered to the ministry. You know, so I get my degree in youth ministry. I go on to, you know, I've been a youth pastor off and on for about nine, ten years. Uh, wound up in Tampa, Tampa, Florida. Uh, before I got there, I met my wife. She's a volleyball player from Tampa, Florida. Right? I literally married up. She's 5'11". I'm 5'9". Your business, you know. But and obviously the Lord blessed us with three beautiful daughters. But in the midst of that, we're living in Tampa. We're in a 975 square foot apartment. I'm youth ministering, and we're living the dream. <laughs> you know, if you, if you know what a ministry salary looks like, y'all get that later. But uh, but blessed, blessed to be serving. Money's not. It's not about the money. Sitting in a 975 square foot apartment, and we've had, we, we, here, here's the story. We had a miscarriage. We lost a child at eight weeks old, okay? Then we had Isabella, uh, who's eight now. Then we had another miscarriage with our third pregnancy at 10 weeks old. And here you got to think back. I found out at eight, eight, eight years old I was adopted. I don't know my family history. I don't know my race. I don't know my ethnicity. I know no medical history, right? So here I am as a father bringing children into the world, I don't do all the work, but, you know, Rachel there, you know, bringing our beautiful children in, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, God, this is where Satan's attacking, that brokenness, you know what I'm saying, it's because of you, something in your past that these babies are dying, you know, aren't making it, and I started kind of getting heavy-hearted and broken again, and, and um, we're sitting in that square, that 975-square-foot uh, apartment in Tampa, and uh, I'm in the living room, and uh, the Lord just speaks to my heart, and he says, it's time. I said, Lord, time for what? And I spent about three or four days wrestling through that. And then fourth day comes up, uh, and he made it clear, it's time to look for your birth mom. So I spent three days, how God works, on Google. And uh, I came across a website on day three, and it was by, for a man named Steve Holt. He's a magician and ventriloquist in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Okay, magician, ventriloquist, yes, talks with dummies, that, that thing, right? This man, I'm reading his bio, I'm like, why did this pop up? I'm reading his bio, and remember those eight pages of typewriter paperwork I had from 1982 that looks like somebody poured coffee all over them now, names are faded. I start matching name after name after name, and then I come across this one. Glenda Sue Holt. So that's my mom. That's my mom's name. 
So I get on the phone. Well, actually, I sent him an email. I was like, I can't. You know, it's one in the morning, something like that. Send him the email. He replies back. Actually, he calls me because I put my number in there. He calls me at like one in the morning. I said, like, I can't do this at one in the morning. So I, I sleep. I get up at seven bright and early. I call. We talk for two hours. Long story short, a month later, I get on a flight, fly to Spartanburg, South Carolina, okay? I get to Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I, we actually spent five days total together, but f- spent the first day or two, and he caught me up on what happened to my mom and, and how I got here. My mother was 18 years old. She's mentally challenged, only functions as an 11-year-old mentally, okay? She was living in a group home in Rome, Georgia. They had her set up with a work program, and she would walk to work and walk back home. Uh, we got little ears in the room, so I'm going to be respectful, but you guys can understand what happened. Uh, she was taken advantage of by five men one night walking back home from work. Brutal attack. So you have a mentally challenged 18-year-old group home. You can imagine what they're telling her, right? Throw them in the Nile. So this 18-year-old, 11-year-old mentally challenged woman said, I'm going to fight for him, my son's life. There's, I found out that there's six siblings out of her family. Steve, my uncle Steve's the only one that doesn't have any mental handicap. So this, her whole life, they grew up in foster homes and group homes, and their parents died early. They had nobody. So she, she's carrying this baby that she doesn't want that for and she wants to make sure that he has life. And they're saying, hey, you can't do this. Mentally challenged, group home, you have nothing to give him. So terminate, you know, abort. And she said no. So she ran away. 18-year-old, mentally challenged, 11-year-old mentally woman ran away, carried me nine months, no prenatal care, not one doctor visit. She wound up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in a women's home, found a friend there. They ran away. Again, there's a pattern there. She wound up in a cardboard box behind an old grocery store in the town that I grew up in called Whitwell, Tennessee. If you're from there, it's Whitwell, about 30 minutes from Chattanooga, um, behind Pickett's Grocery Store. A 16-year-old boy had a heart for her, took her in, his family cared for us, got her to the hospital. About two weeks he was with them, got her to the hospital, and she gave birth to me. And seven days later, she dropped me off at Human Services in Marion County, Tennessee, to go to the Holland family, who my mom, Joyce, had had a miscarriage two years previous and wanted one more little boy. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. This is what God's done with that. Um, it's not about me, brother. We said it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. But I look at my life, and I, we talk about being a voice for the unborn, okay? God, how he took me through ministry, and he, got, he dropped me on my knees that day as a, as a, as a freshman in college and said, Lord, he, he said, Stephen, Stephen, if you lay down those broken pieces, I'm going to use you for greatness, to be a voice. I didn't realize what that was at the time. I got to minister to 41 Churches last year, 15,000 people have heard, have heard about that hope that Jesus can bring. It's not about me, but God, thank you for using my brokenness. The, the story that's in me 
that Glenda Sue Holt, living in a nursing home in Macon, Georgia, right, with no family around, her story has impacted 15,000 people for the sake of Christ. This legacy, three beautiful daughters. Not a thing wrong with them that I know of other than they're just girls. You know what I mean? <laughs> Drama central. But man, what? God, thank you. Purpose, hope, and the future. Brother Anthony and I, 6,000 students we got to share to this year, along with all that. And leading worship, I hope you see where the heart comes from. You know what I'm saying? I'm glad that I wasn't one of those that was thrown in the Nile. My birthday was March 31st, 1982. There's been almost 60 million babies killed aborted since 1973. You think about society, it's that gray area, right? Mentally challenged mother, assaulted, no place, nothing to give. Look what God can do. Thank you, brother. In closing here this morning, 